0: This audio presentation was pre recorded and edited for brevity and clarity.
1: Hello, I'm Michael Buckley of the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus Chat AMD, Getting the Help You Need. If this is your first time on a chat, welcome. I'll briefly tell you a little bit about Bright Focus and what we'll do today. Bright Focus Foundation funds research on macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. We currently are supporting about 200 scientific projects around the world. and as part of that, we want to share the, the latest news and best practices from uh, from the world of research and, and and other experts. So that's why we do the Bright Focus chat, an opportunity to share this information with you. We have a number of materials on our website, brightfocus.org, that has similar information. Let me tell you about today's, today's Bright Focus chat, AMD, getting the help you need. We're very fortunate to have a return guest with us today, uh, Dr. Ranju Prasad is a specialist in low vision re- rehabilitation at the University of Pennsylvania's Medical Center in Philadelphia. We're really fortunate to have Dr. Prasad with us with us before uh, on prior chats. And um, Dr. Prasad, I just want to start off um, by welcoming you and wonder if you could tell tell our listeners a little bit about what you do at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Uh, for another time. I am currently the director of the Penn Center for Low Vision Research and Rehabilitation. Um, It's with the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. particularly the Shea Eye Institute, and I've been practicing for uh, over 19 years. Actually, this is going to be my 20th year coming up and have been at this department for 17 years, and I've had extensive experience managing um, low vision patients with some of the most common conditions, such as macular degeneration, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, and some of the rarest uh, conditions as well. And then I also have a keen interest in uh, international low vision and spent time um, earlier in my career consulting overseas.
1: Oh, well, that's very, really impressive. Just out of curiosity, how did yeah. you uh end up in this line of work?
0: Um, well, it's it's interesting because it wasn't something that I thought about while I was going um while I was in optometry school. Um I worked with a uh low vision uh specialist during my training and I realized that uh, that this was an area which I felt had the greatest need and then for myself, I believed it would have the greatest impact and reward and I wasn't wrong
1: yeah no that's great. Yeah. It seems like it really yeah. make a big difference in in people's lives um you know you, you use the term uh low vision we use it a lot here at bright Focus mm-hmm. um I think it's a phrase it's a term people use maybe more than they understand so' I was wondering yeah. uh, what what exactly does low vision mean
0: well um there is you know people define it differently, I would say, but low vision for me I believe is. Basically, a reduction in visual function secondary to a eye condition which cannot be, um, corrected with medical, surgical, or optical, conventional optical means, I should say. Some people have a cutoff or, um, some definitions have a visual acuity cutoff, uh, but I believe that you could still have pretty decent vision but still have a reduction in function, in visual function. So basically, um, you'll have difficulty uh reading seeing faces as a result of an eye condition that can't be uh you know uh cured or corrected I should say
1: yeah no thank you for that, that elaboration and kind of another term that I think people use a lot but maybe don't understand is yeah. legally blind um so you know kind of what does you know what does legally blind mean and i guess if if the word legal is in there is is there a you know consequence implication for uh having you know being uh, declared legally blind.
0: Yes. So uh, the definition of legal blindness is determined, it's, I guess, by the um, the Social Security Administration or the government. Uh, they have visual acuity and peripheral visual field requirements. So you have to be 2200 or worse in the better seeing eye or a less than 20-degree peripheral visual field in the better-seeing eye. Once you've been certified as being legally blind, you can then uh, receive uh, all benefits uh, that pertain.
1: Oh, that, thank you. Um, yeah. and, you know, in your, your field um, of, of low vision therapy, I know there's, there's a lot of, D- different letters that come <laughs> after people's last names. Let's we'll think about the old Marx Brothers yeah. uh, thing about alphabet soup. I know there's, uh, you know, it seems like, could you just, just briefly tell us a little bit about some of the the common uh, letters that that would appear in, in someone's title? And, and if you're a, a patient or a family member, sort of what are, you know, what ones might be a good fit for, for you?
0: Yeah, so um as you said, yeah, there are many specialists with many different letters and titles after their name. But some of the most common ones are A C L V T C V R T O T and including when um there's a C I A T. So any letter the letter C in front of any of these uh but um titles are basically means certification. So certified, certified through the uh, Academy of Certification of Vision Rehab and Educational Professionals, which is a national certifying organization uh that sets the professional standards. So a um L V T is a low vision therapist. They work with those who are blind and, and visually impaired, they train and provide um uh, adaptive uh help and techniques. Um and uh a VRT is a vision rehab therapist. They deal with people who are blind. And a uh, CATIS is a person who deals with assistive technology. And, and uh, well, actually, that terminology is an assistive technology instructional specialist. So they deal with a, uh, assistive technology, computer, software, mobile devices, tablets, et cetera.
1: Wow, that's impressive. That is a, yeah. It's a lot. Uh, yeah, no, no, but I think that's yeah. really helpful. And related to that uh if, how would someone find uh a a low vision specialist um you know in in their in their community and then one that has the the proper um uh specialization like is, is there some sort of uh resource guide that that people could could seek out?
0: Yeah, I think the first step would be to let their uh primary their eye doctor know because most of the eye doctors will have some knowledge of the low vision specialists in the area. Uh the second would be to contact any of the state or county agencies, every agency, every state has an agency for the blind and visually impaired. So, they would be um a great way to get in touch and to get in contact with a low vision specialist.
1: Well, great. And do you find just sort of in your experience that that um that physicians are are pretty well versed in the in the type of services um specialists like you provide or do you think there's there's some more um you know that, that can be done to to help um you know people get referred to to this type of help
0: yeah I, th- I think they are uh pretty well versed um as you know it's part of their uh their professional training um when they do their residencies and also you know um because they're dealing with so many patients too who may need this um they i'm sure they have the knowledge of it but one of the things i found interesting is that because there is so ma- there are so many changes which occur in our field in itself as far as um you know technology changing um you know uh special like different type of providers that come and go um they may not be aware of the changes so it's up to us to constantly to to educate them and to let them know what's available,
1: yeah thanks so you know probably have if you don't mind, a couple more questions sort of related to that that the you know the process in which a patient uh is then referred to to a specialist um do do people usually need a referral to to see um uh, a low vision specialist
0: they um they don't need a referral uh, a referral from an eye doctor uh, I've had patients who've come to me who've found out on their own um if we're talking about insurances. They may, you know, if they have a particular type of insurance that requires a referral, that's a, something different. What's recommended is that they have a um, some information or um, prior notes or records to let us know what their vision problems are, what their diagnosis is, and preferably at what level of visual acuity that they have because this will give us some background information as far as what we're working with and also determine if there's any changes in their condition, um, any changes in their condition, their acuities, that we would know to refer them back sooner than later.
1: Great. That just uh, kind of Made me think of two two questions. One, you uh, you mentioned the insurance. Does Medicare uh, tend to cover services like this?
0: Yes, because the way we evaluate and then code and bill, it would be considered a uh, medical visit. So, yes, they would cover it.
1: Great. And you mentioned the, you know, kind of the, the, the medical notes and, and uh-huh. how, you know, from a patient perspective, uh, sometimes it can seem a little overwhelming where there, there's, there's different uh, different physicians, different specialists. Yeah. And um, how, what can the patient do to, you know, almost act as the, the general contractor for, the, for their own health or, you know, kind of keep, keep things as, uh, keep everybody as, as informed and coordinated uh, as possible. Any, any tips for us as patients?
0: Yeah, well, the one thing is um, this is where the patients don't have to do anything because with a lot of the big health systems, their electronic medical records are now connected with each other. So we have access to it. So if they go within a big health system, we could see what goes on somewhere else or from another doctor. Um, However, that's not the case. All the time. So, one of the most important things is to keep kind of a written list or a running list of the different providers that you have, your different medical diagnoses, your medications, um, you know, prior surgeries, and just, you know, keep that with you at all times. And when you see the next provider or see, you know, the low vision specialist, Give that to them because that was very helpful. Keep track of all the, um, the information that they give, the sheets that they give you. They sometimes give you summaries afterwards. Just keep track of that. And a lot of the times it is overwhelming because you have so much information. So even if you just bring all your documentation, the doctors will be able to figure things out just by, and then just by asking questions.
1: Well, great. that. Now it's real help. Uh, Dr. Prasad, we've got a few questions that have come in already. Um, one of them is, uh, what's the first step that you can do to hang on to your remaining vision?
0: Um, well, the first step would be, obviously, to be very compliant with your doctor's appointments. Um, so go to your doctor at, at each scheduled visit. Second is pay attention to your visual function and make sure that there's... Um, you know, make make sure of, uh, that there's no changes or immediate changes. So if that happens, obviously go back. Um, so just to be very cognizant and very aware and just to talk to people and tell someone. And second of all, um, or third of all, you know, as far as hanging on to it, so with many of these conditions, the vision is going to be stable. So the key is now to make sure that you can still function with it so you're still able to use it and utilize it. And that's where our field comes in.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, great, and we have a, uh, a caller that is wondering: um, If you have AMD in your uh, extended family tree, is that something you should be concerned about?
0: Absolutely, it's absolutely. It's something that um, you should definitely let your providers know. Um, there, you know, multiple studies have shown that there is a st- strong genetic predisposition to it. Um, so yes, so definitely be be concerned or be aware of it. Be aware.
1: Okay. Yeah, I appreciate that. And then, kind of switching gears mm-hmm. to you know maybe some of the, the the things you work with your patients on. Uh, are there ways you help your patients with um, life around the house, particularly with lighting? And, and you know, we know that many uh, people suffer falls at home, and that's yeah. and that's the reason why they can no longer um, you know live in live in their own home. So, do do you help with uh, lighting or or falls prevention or things like that?
0: Oh, absolutely. So. Falls prevention is probably one of my top priorities because I think there was a study done by the CDC where they found in 2014 that um, over half the people with vision loss have reported falling in that year. So, yeah, it's always a priority for me. Um, I always ask questions about their home environment. Um, One thing, you know, after further questioning and they say that they're having difficulty you know, and are afraid of falling, I ask how cluttered is it? Because you want to make sure the house is clutter-free. You want to make sure that the walkways are pretty clear. Uh, You want to also make sure that the lighting is is good, too. And that also varies depending on the house and depending on the uh, ceiling size, too. You want to make sure that curtains are kind of not at the ground level, slightly above, so you don't want to trip over them. Use rounded tables instead of, you know, tables with squares on it so um, you don't hurt yourself. You know, tables without edges on it, yeah. the sharp edges, yeah. And um, the other, uh, the other more important thing is to actually bring a rehab specialist into the home to evaluate and to, um, you know, to help you, to help you optimize the environment so it's safe for you
1: yeah no it's all that's all great advice yeah. um and kind of uh, as another type of lighting um, that people here ask about on a regular basis is on the computer or mm-hmm. phone or tablet is there do you, do you have um, advice for you know the, the backlighting and other other parts of of being um digitally uh connected
0: yeah so fortunately, the phones have uh advanced and improved so much that there is so much that you can do with the with the light. So, um, a lot of the times people get, have problems with the the glare, you know, the glare when it's too bright. So you want to dim it down just so it's acceptable for you. The other thing that's very helpful is reversing the contrast. So having white print on a black background tends to help too. But again, it doesn't work for everybody. So you have to kind of play around with it or go to a assistive technology specialist to help you determine
1: yeah but well that, no that that's real helpful um we have a a question here wondering about um cataracts um uh you know does, i guess a couple cut park does does that do cataracts put you uh at risk for low vision or when you were and i guess related to that when you work with your patients that also have cataracts um how does that factor into into your health oh home?
0: it um factors it has a big uh big big role in it so People who have vision loss, especially where one eye is significantly better than the other, and they have a secondary cataract on, you know, on top of it, um, those patients will feel, find that it is even more difficult. So they get more glare caused by it. Um, A lot of the surgeons are very reluctant to remove a cataract on the good eye. So we address that by, you know, uh, by, again, lighting, by, Helping with the light, um, using filters, you know, helping with contrast. So yeah, cataracts do play a big role into how well you're seeing with an impairment, with a visual impairment.
1: Uh, Dr. Prasad, I want to turn to a question that is probably you know a, a very difficult for many families uh, with vision uh, issues, and that's driving. Oh um, yeah. And, it, and yeah, kind of yeah, kind of where really to begin tough. here. But um, yeah. we, we had a uh, we had a, a caller who. You know was saying that that there's sort of a disincentive to to get uh treatment from from an eye care professional because wouldn't that uh trigger concerns with your state's motor vehicle agency so I just want to use that as sort of an entry point to your uh you know your kind of big picture suggestions for families as as they work through the the medical and and all emotional and other issues attached to driving
0: yeah so um I encounter driving. Quite often, um, another recent study had shown that um, driving is the second most common concern for patients who have a, have a visual impairment. Um, for I try to explain to the families and to the patients that this is not something that need, that can be overlooked. Um, but I also try to reassure them. So if they're in the earlier stages, mo- uh, I try to explain to them that. You know, most states have, or all states have, driver's requirements, and it varies. So, first and foremost, we need to determine if you're within the state le- legal limits, okay? If you're within the legal limits and you're not, uh, and you're seeing a little bit worse than driving without without restrictions, you can qualify for a restrictive license. So, that tends to be pretty reassuring for patients as well, Um you know, I also tried to reassure them that if you get to a point where y- you cannot drive, there are other transportation, um, opportunities or there's, uh, uh, other modes of transportation. So almost every state or city has a local, uh, medical transport. Uh, Uber is very popular, taxi cabs. So it's very, it is a very sensitive issue or topic, but I try to be, you know, as helpful and resourceful as possible. Um, Now regarding letting the state know, um, different states have different requirements once again. So I'm going to give the example of the state of Pennsylvania where we are required by law to inform the state when a patient does not meet the legal requirements. So, And then once we let them know, um, we don't take the license away. They make the final decisions
1: yeah no, that, that, no this yeah. is very helpful and i guess uh do you have tips for um having that very difficult conversation um in a in a family setting um about uh, uh someone's driving and, and, and the the future of that
0: yeah um it's that, again that's a tough one. One of the things I always tell them is that um again, don't be afraid you know it's something that... It, is necessary, and it's also a legal matter here. And the one thing I also emphasize is that, um, you know, that I do understand and the family understands the loss of independence and how how difficult that is. However, should something happen, there is a lot that's at risk, not just people's lives, but also... You know what you ha- you can lose if something were to happen when you shouldn't have been driving in the first place. So I try to say you know when I put it in the regards of losing, then um, then it tends to, people tend to be a little more open to it. But there is there's a lot at risk.
1: And and I think I think you're exactly right, Doctor. There, there, we as a culture have set value independence yeah. and um, yeah. so much that. Mm-hmm. Um, in your experience, when when fam with your patients um, after families have these conversations, do do things get I don't want to say get better at some point? You know, it, it, what's on the other side of that conversation? I guess <laughs> yeah. You know?
0: it, it depends on the patient. I mean, I've had patients who've become very angry with me, extremely angry, and which is understandable. Um, but then you know their families are very grateful because. They tried to have that conversation. It was difficult, but once they hear it from the provider and from the doctor, it's a little bit more, um, it's a little bit easier. Uh, But one of the things I do do is I show them the state requirements, or I explain in detail what the numbers are. Um, You know, I explain to them where they stand and where they fall, where their their numbers meet their numbers. So, for example, visual acuity. And then I always do a driving visual field to prove and to say, with this, you are w- um within or not within legal limits to drive, and usually, when you have it in paper like that it's black and white, then it's a little bit uh easier to understand or to accept well i don't want to yeah, say no, that because everybody accepts things differently
1: yeah so. no i think that, I think that that's great that yeah. it, it sort of takes the tries to Lower the temperature on the conversation yeah, and, and yeah. make it very factual and it's interesting you mentioned a minute ago about about anger that yeah. that people may may have. I just want to kind of turn to to the emotional side of this you know things like anger and grief and depression yeah. and adjustment to to um, declining vision in in you know as you work with your patients, um, how do you address some of those issues
0: Well, one of the questions that I ask and it 's a very it's a one word, like one question, one sentence. Um, I basically ask, "How are you coping?" And that op- typically opens the floodgates. So people will tell me how they're coping, and you know, and I notice that before I ask that question, many patients, you know, have themselves together; they're okay. And then once I ask that, then they kind of, you know, release themselves and and, and explain how difficult, um, how much difficulty they're having with with coping with their um, with their vision loss, because as we know, it's a grieving process. Just like we lose, you know, how we grieve when we lose a significant other, a loved one, a pet. It's the same way you go through the same stages of grief, and it's it's very hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, yeah, and kind of we have a question that sort of get maybe kind yeah. of relates to some of that. The person says that they feel uh, when they have emotional stress uh, related yeah. to vision yeah. loss, it seems like that emotional stress in the moment makes their vision more blurry so is is there are there sort of mind and eye connections in, in that regard
0: yeah i think i personally think there is i think people who come in um with a lot of you know with the emotional stress or stresses of other things caused by their vision loss not by their vision loss they're not able to focus as well or they're not seeing as well so one of the things with you know with macular degeneration is that there are certain parts of the macula that works better and you're able to isolate that more. So sometimes you're, you're not able to when you are stressed. You know, I, I, I don't know if that's been proven, but that's what it seems to me, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's another reminder of, of how yeah. important it is yeah. to, to, to address these issues. And I know from our previous conversations that uh, you, you helped lead a, a support group. Uh, I was wondering yeah, if you could yeah. tell us a little bit about what you do there and how you think it, it, it helps people.
0: Yes. So one one of the things that we found was that uh, many people who have vision loss find themselves isolated and not connected with other people. And what they found was that people who have sight don't understand what they're going through. Um, So it was, starting our support group was recommended by one of our our patients who has macular degeneration. And um, so we started it last year. Uh we ha- now have 42 member- registered members. Uh we have about 15 members that come in um typically at a time. And uh it's been it's been great. We've got some great feedback. People have connected with each other. They're um able to talk about their uh you know, the grief, the, how they're coping and just strategies too co- um how they've been able to adapt and adjust.
1: Yeah. Well, that's great. And, you know, kind of yeah. staying on the support group topic for yeah. another moment. You know, earlier uh, we talked about driving, you know, we, we mm-hmm. discussed that, that independence and people want to feel like they're, you know, capable of running, you know, running their own life quite well. Yeah. Um, how do you get people to, how, so how do you, co- I don't know, coax might not be the right word, people to into a support group that, that maybe have some predispositions against uh, that, that type of, uh, you know, that type of support?
0: Yeah. So I've, encounter that. And when, after I ask the question about coping, um, you know, they'll tell me that if they tell me that they're having difficulty, then I'll ask if they're going, they're getting help or getting counseling. And then I'll suggest that we do have, you know, I'll suggest our support group to them. I said, do you, you know, and I usually ask them if they know of other people who've gone through the same thing, or are they interested in, in just connecting with others? And once I say that, they usually say yes. And then for sure. some that are hesitant, I'll just say, well, let me give you the information. Whenever you're ready, you know, just let us know. And we find that they do end up contacting us after, um, after a little bit.
1: Well, that's great. No, yeah. It seems like you, you kind of put it on the front doorstep, so, exactly. to, so to speak. Exactly, And they, they, they take it from there. Yeah. And just, go, go
0: ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, because, um, you know, they, they know that there's an option there. There's help out there. There's ways that they can, they can that can help them. There are ways to help them.
1: That's great. It must yeah. be very, very rewarding. And it kind of, re- is, yeah. kind of a last question related to the support groups and the grief and the adjustment and the depression. Do you have any tips for family members of, uh, of someone who, who's experiencing um, low vision, you know, on how, whether it's the direct caregiver or, you know, extended family, or sometimes I think we don't know what to do around a person and then that can... Lead to some awkwardness or distance. So, any tips for for how family and friends can can be supportive?
0: Yeah, um, I think just by attending uh, their doctor's appointments, so they understand the nature of the condition and what they're going through, and have dialogues with the phys- with the doctors. We also found that um, some of our members bring their family members to the support group, not to be an active part of it, but just to listen, and um, that's very helpful for them as well. And also just being patient and just being as empathetic as possible. I think patience is the key, and just to understand that they're going through, um, you know, that, that they're grieving, but, you know, yeah. th- that their loved one is grieving. They're going through, you know, they'll go through all the stages. So it's just, yeah, just be there to support yeah. them. And yeah, yeah.
1: that's interesting because you know all of us, and um, not all, I, I would assume a great many of us want to want to fix problems or want to, yes. and, and it seem like these are things that. That to some extent, can't be can't be fixed. So how do you you know how do you sort of address that um, with the family members that that element of it?
0: Yeah. So um, it's interesting because you know obviously the patients have the same question too. I can't fix it. So what do I do? Well, we you know that's where the low vision where low vision comes in. We teach you adaptive techniques, use of assistive technology, to use the vision that you have remaining to make yourself to make uh, yourself more functional again. So it's just to understand that things they that the loved one it will be independent, but things have to be done differently. Just just doing it in a different way. So just more of reassurance and just know that this is what's out there, this is how we're going to help them.
1: No, I think that's I think that yeah. that's a, a nice mixture of of honesty yeah. and and also, yeah. you know, very very useful. And so Dr. Prasad, I just wanted to sort of if we could conclude by mm-hmm. ask asking you about sort of the do you have a big picture advice you give to your patients or is there a, you know, a common misperception that you frequently try to try to address? Or what's your sort of uh, uh, philosophy, I guess I'd say, uh, to, to dealing with people that, to, to helping people that are, that are uh, dealing with some of these challenges?
0: So The one thing I, um, you know, I always say is that, you know, I'm not here. I can't bring back the vision that you've lost, but we can make the most of the vision that you have remaining, and the key is not to give up and to be open and to be patient and to know that you will be able to read, you just won't be able to read the same way as you did before. You will be able to see faces, but just not the same way you did before. And these are, you know, and then for those who have profound vision loss, you know, for those who, you know, because vision loss comes at all different levels. Again, again, we can't bring that big vision back, but there's ways that we could help you read again by using, you know, auditory techniques or by using your other senses. So I always assure them, you will be able to be independent. You just have to be patient and you just have to be, um, you just have to give yourself time to learn. You just have to learn things a little bit differently now and not to give up hope. And there's a lot of ways that we can help you, that there's a lot of people, a lot. Yeah, we're here to help
1: you. Well, that's great because I'm sure yeah. you you reach people at a very a very challenging time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's it's really, uh, you know, very very impressive. And and I think today you've given people a lot of a lot of yeah. specific um, I- advice or you know, recommendations, things they can they can talk with their doctor about, you know, finding support services uh, near them. So I really appreciate um uh you're, you're once again joining joining us today. And uh, once again, Doctor Doctor Prasad, I just want to thank you very much for for um, being so helpful to the Bright Focus audience.
0: Oh, thank you Michael. Thank you so much for having me. I've... Yeah, thank you.
1: Well, great. We hope to hope we can we can um, have you back on a Bright Focus chat real soon. So, to our audience, thank you very much for for uh, joining us today, and we will talk with you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you.
0: The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.